Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. The impact of the pandemic on the mental health of all Americans can't be overstated. Anxiety, depression, and suicides are at a record level, with disproportionate impacts on the young and elderly who struggle with isolation, fear, and loneliness. Perhaps you know someone who's going through this type of a struggle, or you may be going through it yourself. If so, I hope you'll find this podcast to be interesting and rewarding. A recent New York Times article in December of 2021 cited a survey of 1,320 therapists. Nine out of ten of them reported that they're being overwhelmed with clients seeking help, many for the first time about anxiety, financial stress, and other issues, and that they fear the problem is getting much worse. The solution to anxiety or depression is not one-dimensional, but many professionals seek a reductionist answer focusing on a one-size-fits-all answer or a response to the problem. For a wonderful overview of the multiple factors that can impact mental and health and anxiety, I recommend a podcast by Timothy Keller, called The Wounded Spirit. You can find it in the notes to this podcast. He identifies four primary factors he believes are catalysts to our mental health, physical, emotional, moral, and existential, and one possible solution that may lead to healing and peace. Of course, anyone suffering from anxiety or depression should seek professional help, and this podcast isn't offering medical advice. Everyone must examine all options when addressing anxiety or depression. In 2019, I read a book called You Are Not Your Brain by Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. I found the central concept of the book to be fascinating. In essence, much like wearing a path in the ground by repeatedly walking over the same turf over and over again, you can repeatedly wear grooves in your own brain by repeating negative messaging. Your brain's a passive organ. It then broadcasts these negative messages back to you whether you want to hear them or not. I call them bad brain messages and they can lead to anxiety and stress. Listen now as I interview Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz as he discusses his book, You Are Not Your Brain, and how you can help turn off bad brain messages and use the concept of neuroplasticity as one tool to deal with anxiety and stress. All right, Jeff, I'm going to give a little bit of a background of you. I'll do a little intro, and then just ask us some questions, and here we go. Okay. Ready? All right. Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, you're a research psychiatrist at the School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and one of the world's leading experts in neuroplasticity. Decades ago, you began the study of the philosophy of conscious awareness, the idea that the actions of the mind have an effect on the workings of the brain. Books you've written include The Mind and the Brain, and You Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life. 
and your latest book is The Wise Advocate. Jeff, welcome to Truth Serum. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Let me give my listeners a little background on how I discovered your work, and I'll ask you some questions, and here we go. With, with the onset of the pandemic, the rise in anxiety and depression and suicide, I think it's safe to say it's reached epidemic proportions. I became familiar with the concept of neuroplasticity and cognitive behavioral therapy by reading your book, You Are Not Your Brain. And I think it provides revolutionary and effective methods for understanding how you can unknowingly program your brain to sabotage your own mind and what you can do to change that programming. So I thought this might be of tremendous benefit to my listeners. Please give my listeners a brief description of how you can inadvertently train your brain to sabotage your own being and what neuroplasticity is. Well, I mean, I mean, the word habit is right in the subtitle of you are not your brain. And, and um, it's, it's habits that really wire your brain in ways that um, can be very problematic. Now, it can also be very advantageous. And that gets into the whole concept of the wise advocate in mindfulness to make a distinction between good and bad habits, which really becomes an issue of whether you're paying constructive or not so constructive attention. But the big issue there is anything that gets repeated um, is going to end up in your habit center. In neuroscience terms, that's also called the striatum. It's um, part of what's called the basal ganglia, which we really share with reptiles and birds. So it's, you know, it's a very evolutionarily old structure. And once things get wired into it, they really happen automatically. Um, and that that's sort of the most core element of human neuroplasticity and, and not only human. Um, and um, the big point there is that once it's in there, it's not so easy to get out because it's, it's very automatic and you're not really conscious of doing it to a very significant degree. So, so that's, you know, that, so habits are the really primary example of neuroplasticity and how it can be either constructive or destructive based on what kinds of habits you form. Good. Let's, let's dig in a little bit. Your book was fascinating to me. In particular, the you're, you're Not Your Brain book. It stresses the concept that your brain's a passive organ. It's not good nor bad, and it reacts to self-programming. At least this is how I see it, that uh, it's separate and apart from your soul or, as you describe it, your wise advocate that can direct you to positive goals and aspirations that override your negative programming. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, I basically agree with, with the way you put that. So. Um, the wise advocate is is what we call the inner loving guide that is actually a term that I've kind of come up with in You Are Not Your Brain in conjunction. That book was written in conjunction with um, another psychiatrist named Rebecca Gladding. And um, it's really a term that we think um, embodies more fully a proper understanding of the word mindfulness, which has become such a overused term that it's lost too much of its meaning. Um, but traditional mindfulness, which is a tradition that I've been in for many, many decades, um, 
way over 40 years now, um, really going on 50 years in a, in a very serious daily practice way, um, is, is, is having what we like to call an outer perspective on your inner experience. And by, by having an outer perspective on your inner experience, you can make what we call assessments and discernments or have insight into the value or lack thereof, or we might say whether the actions that you're doing, but or even the way you're thinking and your emotional responses, whether they're constructive or not. And, and those are the kinds of discernments that are not just the brain, because I do agree that, that the brain is very, very significantly passive. Um, but so much of it's automatic that, you, I mean, that has a very deep consequence. There's really not much room left for real active, active um, choice. And of course, in, in academic neuroscience, most people don't even believe in active choice, but that's a whole other question about how much determinism has completely come to dominate the field of academic neuroscience. But, but, but I, you know, I very much believe that there's still some room for making choices about um, which direction your brain is going to go. And in, in the, and those choices come from consulting your wise advocate, or in the older terminology, using real mindfulness to observe what's going on, what's your brain sending you, and what choices are you making about how to respond with what, to what your brain is sending you. Great. Can I interject one thing? Let me back up just a bit, because at least how I understand it, I'm trying to see if I can get my listeners maybe to see it from my perspective. So I, I, the term in your book, I love it. It's called the quantum Zeno effect seems to imply that just like if you're walking around a mountain and beating a well-worn path, if you keep uh, self-programming your brain by saying things or doing things over and over again, that in essence becomes baked in by this quantum Zeno effect so that it broadcasts these negative messages to you. So can you elaborate a little bit on yeah, that? Because that, I think, to my That's, oh, oh you're, you're on, you don't even need quantum Zeno effect. Let me, let me clarify that. Um, you don't even need quantum Zeno effect to do what you just described. What I first was talking about, reptiles and birds do it. Now they, I mean, whether they use quantum Zeno effect, it gets into like deep questions about quantum biology, but, and they probably do, but not in a way that a human can use it to make, a, to make choices that change their own brain. So anything that's done repetitively, anything that's done repetitively ends up in the habit center, the striatum, and becomes automatic. But what quantum Zeno effect is, and um, this, this is an application that came from my many years of work with the Berkeley physicists at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, um, Henry Stapp, um, is, and quantum Zeno effect itself is not controversial. It's one of those deep, mysterious things in quantum physics about how the way you observe affects outcomes in, in quantum mechanics. And, and we've done a significant amount of academic writing 
including one you know, major paper in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society on this application of quantum Zeno effect to the brain. But it's not hard to understand in terms of the bottom line of what it does. And what, what it does is state that anything that is repetitively observed um, is held in place and stabilized. Um, and when we apply that to the brain, it means that if you focus attention on an experience, the brain correlates of that experience will be held in place and become stabilized. And then by something that's very, very well known in neuroscience and not controversial at all called Hebb's Law, um, cells that fire together, wire together. And what quantum Zeno effect is gets, it shows that attention can get the cells to wire together. Because once you know that, um, or to fire together so that they wire together, because once you know by Hebb's law that what fires together wires together, then the really important question becomes, how do you get what you want to fire together to fire together? And the answer to that is, focused attention and that and the way that works in this theoretical perspective is by the quantum Zeno effect, which definitely can have effects in the brain. All the things you hear to the contrary, I think, are not relevant objections to the fact that because of the atomic effects of ion channels in the brain, there's simply no question that the brain is a quantum environment and that something like quantum Zeno effect can operate there. So focused attention gets things to fire together. When they fire together, they wire together. And that is how self-directed neuroplasticity works. Fascinating. Love it. All right. Now let me, if I can, just jump forward a little bit to mindfulness. You just spoke about that a little bit. Uh, I view it as uh, you look at mindfulness as one way to examine the messages that your brain is broadcasting to you so you can identify the type of message you're receiving. If it's negative, you can redirect to a positive message or habit instead of battling the negative thoughts and reinforcing them. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, that now that was very well stated. I got to tell you, I mean, for all the people that talk about mindfulness, that was an, a pretty simple and accurate um description. And I got to tell you, you, you know, it's not that easy to find simple, accurate descriptions about mindfulness. So, so that's really the big point is that mindfulness, to use those keywords that we like, make assessments and discernments about what your brain is sending you. So another term that comes from the great Scottish philosopher, Adam Smith, who also wrote the book, The Wealth of Nations, but also was very interested in moral philosophy. And he, he had a term called the impartial spectator. And so that's a very Western term, which has a lot in common with what mindfulness actually is in, in the original tradition of you know, thousands of years ago, which basically is a mode of observing as an impartial, I also like to say, third-person perspective on first-person experience. So you're looking inside yourself like a clear-minded observer to see what's actually there. And in, and in the ancient teachings of Buddhism um, from several hundred years BC, in the original 
Pali language, which is a Sanskrit dialect, um, discourses on mindfulness. Um, Gautama, who came up with this way of thinking, um, also called the Buddha in Buddhist tradition, um, said that if you use this way of thinking, it's very, very, very important because it enables you to make these discernments between wholesome and unwholesome mental states. And as you just said, that enables you to focus your attention on the ones that are wholesome and not focus your attention, or at least have the opportunity to make a choice and expend the effort to not focus your attention on the unwholesome ones. And then by the mechanism I just described, you're going to change your brain in that way by focused attention, stabilizing the firing of, 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 the, of the cells that leads them to wire together. And therein you get either adaptive or maladaptive neuroplasticity by choice in terms of whether you focus on wholesome or unwholesome activities. And mindfulness is the thing or the wise spectator is the inner voice that enables you to make those assessments and discernments. Should I be paying attention to this or should I be not paying attention to this? That, that's a, the big question that mindfulness addresses. That's great. You know, one thing, if I can give a little anecdotal uh, from the from your book, anecdotal experience, you I think gave an exercise where you said, uh, you know, go into a, a room by yourself. I think for up to two to five minutes, and see if you can focus on nothing but your breathing. So my wife and I did that, separate rooms, and I tried to think of nothing but my breathing. Thirty seconds into it, I was water skiing into he Tahiti. And I started realizing that my brain's broadcasting all these messages to me, even if I'm trying to calm them down or not. So I realized that it's the nice idea of your brain broadcasting. It's a person who speaks about this so candidly as you do and just did. So, I mean, you do have the, a major benefit of honestly describing your experience, which is an extremely key part of what real mindfulness is. And you're absolutely right. Now, it's not thinking about your breath. It's actually observing your breath. And, and, this, and, and, and observing your breath means basically observing the feeling of the movement of in and out air. That's the most basic way to do mindfulness meditation and it's it's also the core way to do mindfulness meditation and and you're at which you know which i've been practicing you know for you know a lot more than five minutes a day for many decades now so i mean i have fifteen thousand formal hours of of practice of of that approach to doing meditation and uh, and and and, and you're absolutely right. The first thing that you discover when you try to do that is that your mind wanders. And this is, and this is really where you build up the, this capacity to make assessments and discernments about where is my mind? Where is my attention? Is my attention still on my breath? A lot of time, the answer to that is going to be no. And what you're trying to do is make the shorter and shorter time period that it takes you to realize that your mind has wandered and then gently bring it back to the next breath. And in doing that, you absolutely build up the strength of your executive brain. I mean, so, so that's another big part and now a very academically demonstrated part of the effects of breath awareness observation, you know, that 
kind of approach to focused attention practice is that it strengthens the capacity of the executive brain, which is the outside of the front of the brain, the so-called lateral prefrontal cortex. And, and, and the executive brain is, is what allows you to focus your attention and pay attention to long-term goals and plans and, 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 and actualize and also what's called inhibitory control, which is extremely important if you want to like not pay attention to things that you're saying, this is not a great thing for me to be paying so much attention to. And it takes a lot of effort. Inhibitory control is very energy intensive, whereas habits are extremely energy efficient. So there's a, a super energy imbalance between the amount of energy it takes to do a habit, which is very little, and the amount of energy that it takes to not do a habit, which is very large. And what that translates into is the effort it takes to get your mind to not go where it usually goes. I mean, um, which is why it's, it's so important to pay attention to these things. Yes, you're bringing up so many thoughts that I, very, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny because if I get to a point where my mind's just taken over, the, the, my one way out, fail safe, I go exercise. And sometimes I'm up at four o'clock oh, in the morning. A, that's a good, that's a reasonable one. I mean, that, that is a reasonable start. And mindful, and, and, and exercise lends itself to mindfulness. I mean, you know, mindfulness of, of the body of a certain kind. I mean, you know, physical exercise can be helpful, especially if it's done paying proper attention to the form with which you do the exercise. Okay, one more, let's uh, go on to another item. In your book, You're Not Your Brain, you cite an example, I found it to be fascinating, where a patient ha had a severe stroke, uh, lost her ability to control motor functions on one side of her body, and she used uh, what I believe was neuroplasticity and cognitive behavioral therapy to direct the brain to transfer functions that were destroyed by the stroke to the other half of the body that was functioning. Could you explain that? that I thought okay, that was amazing. So, now, so the whole book before uh, You Are Not Your Brain is called The Mind and the Brain. And, and that, that is a book, it's a science book, but it's a trade science book. So I would say any sort of senior high school person who's interested in science and certainly any college student who's interested in science could read the book. It's sophisticated enough so that even reading it at early graduate school level wouldn't be unreasonable. So it's a science book. But that whole book is about largely about what you just described is how people um, with significant brain damage um, have been able to change their brain by doing focused attention um, physical therapy. Um, a lot of which was started by a man named Edward Taub, um, and and um, and he he still is working in the field, and 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 those are the experiments that you and and they're more than experiments now. That's the approach to physical therapy um, that you were just describing, um, and there and and there's a whole description of that in the book, the mind and the and and the brain. And, and then, yes, we mentioned it, of course, in You Are Not Your Brain in a much more cursory way. I mean, but, that, but that's the point, is, is, is the big thing that Taub, the, the, the huge insight that Taub had was 
in in you know in before he started doing this kind of approach which which he himself very much realized would be calling into play an approach to neuroplasticity um physical therapy would take a person who had a stroke and now only has one arm that really works well the other arm is paralyzed to a very significant degree or very much weaker they would tell the person look you got to use your other arm you know the arm that's left to do everything now because what he would do is constrain in in the therapy sessions constrain the good arm and 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 really stress the need of the person to make the tremendous effort with proper therapists with proper you know not too much and you know but stressing that the person still could get the damaged limb to work with tremendous effort and constructive and yes that very much rewires the brain so that the area of the brain that definitely that basically died in the stroke the functions are taken over by other areas of the brain so it's a major example of a term i called i coined called self-directed neuroplasticity and then we used an analogous kind of a thing in treating obsessive compulsive disorder I mean, so 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 that's what that's what the whole book, the mind and the brain, is a science book about that. And there's a lot in that book about stroke be, be, because of it, it's the it's a primary example, you know. And and Edward Taub's work is is very featured. Another man's work who's featured in in that book is Michael Merzenich, who has gone on to use these kinds of approaches for all different kinds of you know, interesting applications in terms of training people with dyslexia to read and having older people, you know, reverse certain kinds of physical and, and, and even mental um, things that develop with aging. So there's a lot you can do with neuroplasticity. And, th and that is reviewed in some detail, but accessible, but scientifically serious in the book, The Mind and the Brain that I wrote with the very eminent uh, scientific journalist Sharon Begley about 20 years ago. Well said. All right. So if a person wants to explore the concepts of, of neuroplasticity uh, that we've discussed, how would you suggest that they start? Well, okay. I mean, it look, I mean, it depends how scientifically oriented you are. I mean, if you're, if you're reasonably scientifically oriented and want to really learn the science of how this all was discovered, that book, The Mind and the Brain, is, is pretty good. But it's, it's, a, it's a little bit too much science for people who, who don't like, like science. It's that kind of a thing. So You Are Not Your Brain is a great place to start because, I mean, that there we took the principles of from the mind and the brain and, and, and really applied them to such much more day-to-day -day habits and, 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 and sort of day-to-day -day living problems using my work on obsessive compulsive disorder as, as a background. And then in my most recent work, I mean, I have a book that I co-authored with um, Art Kleiner, who's a very eminent business writer and a very eminent business coach um, named Josie Thompson called The Wise Advocate, which is really um, kind of almost like volume two of You Are Not Your Brain. Although now, instead of, it, instead of it being applied to sort of everyday kind of behaviors that 
bad habits and how to change bad habits. Now it's really written to show that these same techniques and a four-step method that I developed many years ago of relabel, reframe, refocus, and revalue can be used to enhance business leadership skills and make wise choices about when to use strategic as opposed to transactional leadership. So if you have a business orientation and you want the science to be very business friendly and much more accessible, The Wise Advocate is a very good place to start too. So those two books, You Are Not Your Brain and The Wise Advocate, they're very much joined together. The Wise Advocate is really a business leadership application of You Are Not Your Brain. And they're both about how to use self-directed neuroplasticity effectively. Yeah, I'm coming in for a landing here, but you brought me back to one thing I thought was uh, worth just one more question, if you would. Um, the idea of relabeling and refocusing. Can you, uh, and again, your brain's broadcasting these bad messages. You're, you're a prisoner to them. And you're, one of your, your uh, uh, solutions is to relabel. Can you explain that to people? Yeah, no. So, uh, so mostly a lot of what I've done has been based on those four steps, which are really from my original book, Brain Lock for OCD. I mean, Brain Lock is just a book for people with OCD. It's way, way, way too intense with OCD unless, to read unless you just really have OCD. But, but, but the, the technique became much more generally applicable because it's based on mindfulness. So relabeling is making mental notes and calling it what it is and using the impartial spectator or the wise advocate to sort of know okay, this is a problem right now. I'm paying attention to something that's not helpful to me. And then, and or you're being bombarded by deceptive brain messages, false thoughts. I mean, we all get that. People with depression really get it. Needless to say, people with OCD get it all the time. But everybody gets it to some degree. And and you want to reframe those false thoughts to say, they're false. They're cognitive distortions. They're deceptive brain messages. You can correct them. So you relabel, say, this isn't helpful. And you reframe and say, this is why it's false. You correct it. And that's really very much part of doing cognitive therapy. And this is really an approach to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And then you refocus your attention with all the benefits that we've been describing in this whole interview about how that rewires your brain. So you relabel it, you reframe it and say, it's false. Let me replace it with something that's true. Then you focus your attention on the adaptive behavior and the true thought that rewires your brain. So your values change. So when you revalue, it shows that what was formerly trapping you as a, as a bad thought, you now go, that's ridiculous. I'm not paying attention to that. And you've, and that, and you're, and revaluing shows that you're, you've rewired your brain. You don't respond the same way anymore. And your brain changes as a result of that. Great synthesis. Thank you. Appreciate it. Two more questions and I'm done for the person who's lost hope and feels controlled by OCD or, or other anxiety. What would you say to encourage them? Well, look, I mean, you know, I have, you know, I happen to be a a significantly faith-based person. So, okay. I mean, if you are, you know, I would say that the wise advocate has a very spiritual element if you wanted to, but, but if, if you're completely secular and, you know, and an atheist, the wise advocate still works fine. You just call it a cognitive construct that, that gives you insight and, and, and use it as sort of the, 
third person perspective on first person experience and then what is now secular mindfulness you know what, trying not to have it slip into just totally pop mindfulness and 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 there you're just using again the, the you know the clear-minded view of what's going on. The four steps can be understood completely in a secular way, no problem. Relabel, reframe, refocus will change your brain. You, you know, and then you change your brain, your values change. So neuroplasticity is filled with hope. You know, self-directed neuroplasticity says you can do something about this. You know, you if you understand it more clearly, you see the, the, the cognitive distortions, you see the deceptive brain messages, you can change it by relabeling it, seeing what's false, reframing it, and focusing your attention differently. Yes, it takes effort, but it builds up your executive brain. And this is a proper understanding of mindfulness. And the wise advocate is there to help you, you know, very much a helper, a guide, an inner loving guide. Everybody has that. And then you want to access it, focus your attention on it, have it help you focus your attention adaptively. Very good. And I was just going to say, for those who are terrified of the concept of God, your wise advocate isn't at odds with faith that you might have that God's giving you that wisdom as well, is it? Look, I mean, the wise advocate is, is very flexible in terms of the way you can contextualize it. I mean, it can be understood sort of like impartial spectator, you know, like like pop mindfulness to the degree. I mean, you know, let's face it, in the original tradition, there's a deep, deep spiritual context that mindfulness is coming into, you know, so that you're not totally controlled by your past karma. I mean, that's the whole point of it. It's a deeply spiritual system, but, but, but okay. But you can really just understand it as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy because MBCT started by my friend, John Teasdale. We've been working on parallel tracks for four decades now. I mean, you know, it's MBCT.com. I'm giving them a free plug. I'm happy to do it. Right. I mean, this wise advocate is just an approach to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and can absolutely be understood that way. Great. All right. You've been uh, you've been enlightening and I've enjoyed talking to you. How can my listeners follow you or get in touch with you? Look, I mean, I, you know what? I'm 70 years old and I'm not looking for a ton of people to get in touch with me. But but we do have wise advocate W.I.S.E.A.D.V.O.C. The number eight dot coms because A.T.E. was taken. So wise advocate W.I.S.E. A D V O C the numeral eight dot com is my you know me my partners and 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 you know that that is the way to do it now go to wiseadvocate.com we have a very you know an interactive website we have a lot of stuff going on that's how to get involved wiseadvocate.com great Jeff Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've, uh, you gave me a little bit more information than I thought I'd get, and I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you again. Hope you found my interview with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz to be interesting. My hope is that it might encourage you or those you know who are struggling with either anxiety or depression or just general malaise resulting from the pandemic to seek help to battle the problem. Neuroplasticity is just one tool, and anyone suffering from anxiety or depression should seek professional help, 
Again, this podcast is not offering medical advice, but there is hope. This podcast and those who work behind the scenes to produce it are offering our hopes and prayers for all our listeners that 2022 begins a return to normal, that we'll find a common ground together and hope together, and that we'll combat the anxiety and stress that's assaulted all of us. Finally, True Serum seeks to update on current issues facing lenders, landlords, and investors, and to bring you interesting interviews on everything else that matters. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and leave some feedback wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help us to continue to find interesting and thought-provoking guests and then bring them to you. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.